Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. So we're working our way, actually we're almost done with this book of uh, Daniel Goleman's called Emotional Intelligence that, that we're sharing with each other this week. And Reverend Sharon and I have done, I think, a pretty credible job of explaining both where emotions come from, the, the kind of range of them, uh, uh, what it is about our brains that react in certain ways and things like that. Today I want to get super practical with you all. We're going to take two of the most powerful emotions, anger and fear, and I'm going to give you actual real-world examples of how we might use them in positive ways in some of the, rather than in some of the scarier ways that we're perhaps more familiar. So I'm going to start out with anger, and you know how I am. I can even find a joke about anger. Actually, this is even a threefer. You get anger, exasperation, and annoyance all in one joke. <laughs> it hardly gets better than that, does it? All right, so a young girl is writing a paper for school, and she comes to her father and asks, Dad, what's the difference between annoyance, anger, and exasperation? Can you help me understand these? The father smiled, thought a moment, got out the telephone. He randomly dialed a phone number. So someone answers, hello, and her father says, hello, is Melvin there? The man answers, there's no one named Melvin living here, and hangs up. See, said the father to his daughter, that man was not a bit happy with our call. He was probably very busy doing something else. We annoyed him. Now watch. The dad picked up the phone, dialed the exact same number again, and said, hello, is Melvin there? Now look here, came the heated reply. You just called this number. I already told you there's no Melvin here. You have a lot of guts calling and slams the receiver down. The father turned to his daughter and said, you see, dear, that was anger. <laughs> Now one more. He picks up the phone number, dials the same number for, uh, one more time, and I got to tell you, the voice on the other end was outright violent when he said, hello. The father said calmly, hello, this is Melvin. Have there been any calls for me? <laughs> and that would be exasperation. All right. So anger, first of all, do we know how to spot anger? I mean, most of us do when it's overt, but you can actually see it pretty, pretty early on. Certainly, if you're the one getting angry, where do you feel it first? Probably in your face. You'll start feeling a little bit of a flush in your face. Your heart will be racing a little bit or certainly beating faster. But other things you may not have noticed before, your stance will change a little bit. You'll tend to put one foot out in front of each other. And believe it or not, that's the fighting stance. That's the, and I know we, we seldom actually get into fisticuffs anymore. Anymore, and yet your body, when you're actually quite angry, will tend to be in that kind of a stance. You're going to present. A, I know this is crazy. Like those of you who have maybe learned boxing are going, Larry, you're you're giving us a lesson in boxing, and we probably don't need that on Sunday. But these are the kind of signs to actually watch for. You'll also perhaps start feeling a, a sense of of overheatedness. One of the reasons we think of anger as a hot emotion is literally our bodies will start 
start sweating as well. Okay, those are the signs of it. And I would suggest to you that anger is actually a useful emotion. When you are angry, it means that something is going on that you don't want to have going on. Someone or something is in your face, is creating a situation that is unpleasant, potentially dangerous, potentially harmful for you, and it's important that we actually pay attention to this. The trouble is our limbic system absolutely has us ready to start duking it out. That is our natural and first reaction to anger, whether it's in us or whether we see it in someone else. And this is the piece that we have to work on a bit, right? Because we're not going to fight anyone. And in fact, in modern society, there's almost never a good time when you would want to fight. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, some of our members just finished a, a karate class and, and, and got their, uh, their yellow belts. And I was so excited and, and proud of them. I mean, that's a huge commitment to learning. But I was thinking, you know, even people who are trained, like maybe even a black belt in martial arts, right? So the other guy has a gun? Do you know what I mean? Even as best we might train ourselves to effectively be violent, and I'm not suggesting that, it still probably isn't a good idea. So what do we do instead? We need to de-escalate a bit. And you know what? The best place to start is where my mom started with me like 40 or 50 years ago, and that was Larry, count to 10. <laughs> and honestly, it works. You literally can take an adult time out. Because what you want to do is you want to de-escalate. You want to lower your heart rate again. You want to not feel that rush, that almost compulsion to do something physical because that actually isn't going to help you. And if the anger is in someone else, there are a lot of things that you can do to de-escalate the situation. One of the most powerful ones is to acknowledge what's going on. Oftentimes, anger just builds on anger, and there's never even an acknowledgement that you're mad because you're so in the anger, right? You think it's about something else. We're mad about the car. We're mad about finances. We're mad about how to raise the children or the grades or whatever it is, and we have every right to be mad, and we don't even address the madness because we think it's about something else. So the first thing that you can do if someone else is angry is acknowledge it. When you slammed your fist down on the table, I got to tell you, I really felt the anger in the room, and it made me a little fearful. Right away, because you're saying I am statements and bringing your own feelings into it, it's as though a collective sigh can hit the room. It's like, oh my gosh, we are being angry. Just acknowledging it is useful. The next thing you can do also is address the issue for a moment instead of the anger. And so, if for instance, the issue is around, I don't know, the grades your children got or raising the, raising the children or something like that, seek out something you have in common. The whole reason you're fighting is because you love your children. The whole reason you're fighting in the office is, is because you want the business to be successful. And if you acknowledge that, in essence, you're saying, we're on the same team here, right? So you could say something like, oh my gosh, when you slammed your fist down on the table, I really could feel the anger in the room. And I gotta tell you, 
we're both in this together. We both want the children to be successful. We both want the vacation to go well. You know, everyone here wants the company to be successful or whatever it is. We're in it together. You would not be fighting over it if it weren't important to both of you, right? And so when you start from that commonality, boy, the tension comes way down. Because in essence, you're saying, I invite us to participate in this together. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think we can be successful at it. You're engaging them rather than refuting them. Now, how can we do this in our own heart if, if we're the one that's sensing anger? First of all, we, we, we judge our own impact and we, we notice the reaction to it. And, and what will often happen is someone will, if you're angry, someone will build on it and the voice will escalate or the, uh, the, the gestures will get bigger, right? And so that's your clue. Uh-oh, this is going the wrong way. And I got a real me in first. So it's the person who notices it first, the person that has the wherewithal to, to, to take the, you know, the time out or the step back or the whatever it is. But amazingly, you have a lot of power in that. You have noticed it first and you can bring it back, whether it's in you or whether it's in the other person. And I got to tell you, you know, a lot of people think the escalation is from sheer, sheer volume. And that occasionally is true, right? If someone is really angry and then you come back even angrier and louder, I mean, it does have that escalating effect. But I got to tell you, that's not the pattern of lots of families. For my mother, when she would get really angry, her voice would sound like she'd been drinking whiskey all day and it would slow down and you did not want to feel that wrath. <laughs> right? <laughs> Do you see how I escalated the anger there without raising my voice? In fact, my voice got slower and quieter, and right? And yet, you absolutely could tell the undercurrent of an escalating anger in there. So you need to know, first of all, what goes on in your own family, right? Because sometimes it isn't the, the booming voice at all. Sometimes, in fact, I want to try another one out for you. Did you ever get the silent treatment, right? When someone would finally get to some level of exasperation or anger or, or torturous, you know. And I think it gets back to, here's another one my mom said when I was really young. If you can't say anything nice, don't say. It was almost portrayed as though it were a good thing. So if you're going to get angry and you can't figure it out, just, you know, fine. Do you know what? That's actually more dangerous than fighting. Daniel Goleman and all of the studies show that ignoring or stonewalling, as it's officially called, is actually more dangerous to a relationship than openly bickering about it. I want to read you a, a short segment out of the book here. I, I think it tells the story better than I can explain it. He says, uh, <coughs> excuse me here. Where's my paper? Oh, I see. There's my paper clip. Stonewalling is the ultimate defense. The stonewaller just goes blank. 
in effect withdrawing from the conversation by responding with a stony expression in silence. Stonewalling sends this message. It's unnerving. It's a combination of icy distance, superiority, and distaste. And he goes on to say, as a habitual response to anger, stonewalling is devastating to the health of a relationship because it cuts off all possibility of working out the disagreement. In essence, when you stonewall, especially habitually, you're saying you are not even worth figuring this out. It's as though you have completely discounted the person with which you have the disagreement and you're sending the message, especially over time, you're not worth it, you're no good. Do you see why this can often be the end of a relationship? Because you're really saying, there isn't anything strong enough here to even figure it out. So I'm just gonna turn my back on it. Okay, so what are some positive things then that we can do about anger? I mentioned a couple of them. First, we want to work on the idea of bringing it down, bringing down the, the high drama, bringing down the, the, the almost exhilarating, honestly. Have you noticed some people are like rageaholics? Occasionally, we run into someone that one of their main ways of expressing in life is rage, and, and there is a little bit of an addiction involved in that, and, and someone may actually need to go to an anger management class, if, if their emotions run high and they actually kind of feel exhilarated around being angry all the time, right? But if it's the normal garden variety of anger, first of all, what you do with it is to acknowledge that there's something here worth changing, right? And you simply state what you would like to have be different. I know this sounds funny in a way. We're so used to kind of being passive aggressive on this planet, right? If you really knew me, you'd already know what I wanted from you, right? I'll just sit around until you finally become a brain scientist and figure out what I want, right? But it's not true. If we simply state what we would like to have be different, it's very disarming and people are actually very likely to pay attention to you. So when someone is starting to get angry and slams the fist down, you can simply say, oh my gosh, I can see how angry you are. But you know, we're both in this for the same reason. We both wanna find a way to stay within our budget, right? So that's where you get on the same side as that person. And then you can say something simply like, uh, I think it would be a good idea if next time a check gets written on the joint checking account for more than $100, we're all in agreement about it. As an example, let's say, you know, you're ready for a knockout drag out fight around, you know, the credit card got used again or the checking account. Or maybe it's raising the children. Maybe it's raising the children, right? It's like, Johnny, go to your room. We have to have some adult talking time. And it's like, yikes. <laughs> you know, you can say something simply like, oh my gosh, I can see this really, really upset you. And yet, what I both know, our strongest desire in the world is to be good parents, right? So you've put yourself on the same team, you've brought down the energy of, of trouble and anger, and then you just say something simple like, 
maybe we need to take an adult kind of time out so that we don't seem so angry around the kids all the time. Maybe we need to figure this out more rationally. Simply state what it is you would like to have happen in the world. Shall we move on to my next favorite emotion, fear? <laughs> I actually have. <laughs> okay, first of all, what, what is fear? Because fear presents itself differently, and you can see it in other people, and you can feel it in yourself. First of all, instead of this, which is anger, anger is the squinty eye, so that you can see the enemy further in the distance. Anger is... It's the big eye. It's like, oh my God, what's coming at? I mean, fear is the big eye. It's like, what's coming my way? How am I going to deal with this? It's the pit in the stomach. A different set of biochemicals are going through your bloodstream that will bring the hairs up on the back of your arm and, and, and make the little place between your shoulder blade contract a little bit. It's, it's an opening and a backing up kind of feeling as though you're going to flee and 10,000 years ago, that was exact, it was supposed to do that, so we'd get ready to turn and just make haste to get out of trouble. And you know what? It's absolutely useful today, and we should react in it. If you are in the presence of physical danger, I say go with those chemicals. Let's get the heck out of here. If you're actually in danger of your life, if the train is really on the tracks and you are too, let, let's, let's do something about that, right? Let's absolutely do. Don't let's think, well, well, yeah, it is getting closer. Yeah. Gosh, the tracks really shake when it gets really close. Let's not do that. Let's act on it. But you know what? The trouble with fear is that it turns into something so often that we call worry and anxiety. And what those are is the fear of something that isn't happening. It's the fear of something that only may or may not happen. And, and again, I'll use my mom as an example. When I was a teenager, I wasn't the best boy on the planet. We had a 10 o'clock curfew, and I got to tell you, my junior and senior year, <laughs> 10 o'clock. <laughs> I remember one time I got home, and my mother said, Larry, I've been worried sick. Have you heard that expression before? It's because it's true. It's because it's true. If you have a fear that doesn't have some kind of a resolution, right? The tr you can't see that the train isn't coming. The train only might be coming, right? So you're in that constant presence of something maybe is going to happen, and I'm fearful of it. So anxiety and stress are there. It literally will make you sick, and we need to do something about it. One of the things that was uh, stunning to me, I was reading some studies about long-term effects of anxiety. They have actually shown that it is worse to have long-term fear and anxiety, worry in essence, than it is the thing you're worrying about, right? The chances of that weird thing happening is maybe one in two or 300, right? That Larry really won't come home because it, it's late and I'm worried that he's lying dead in the freeway. It's like that never happens. I'm here, right? The chances of most of our worries happening are actually pretty small. But guess what happens to us when we worry? Our heart rate stays up all the time we're worrying. 
the adrenalines and, and biochemical cocktails getting us ready to fight and flee and do all those things are coursing through our bodies that making our cells wear out faster. All of the things that in an earlier age we would have been ready to fight or flee or, or do all the craziness where we had to have superhuman strength to lift the BMW off the, you know, the chihuahua, all of that is coursing through our bodies and in crazy ways. And you know what? It's making us old. It's wearing us out. It's creating permanent high blood pressure. It's creating bronchial tubes that are brittle. It's doing all of the things that we don't want. It's like chain smoking. It's like chain smoking. Well, what can we do about it? I have bad news on this one. Daniel Goleman says, just telling you to stop worry is useless. Have you ever tried? Have you ever said, well, I've just been kind of worried about, it's like I'm worried about losing my job. You know, a company, uh, I remember when I worked for the telephone company and, and uh, U.S. West got bought out by Quest. You probably remember when all that BS was happening. We were all worried for about a year literally worried that our jobs were going to go away. And, and, and some of them did eventually go away, although most of us were still employed. Do you know what that year of worry was like? The n- amount of sick time at the telephone company for that year was astronomical. Uh, and there's medical evidence. Let me read you f- uh, from Daniel's book this one, uh, this one story that is really amazing. In one of the most scientifically compelling studies, uh, A researcher carefully assessed how much stress and worry people were feeling in their lives and then systematically exposed them to a cold virus. Not everyone so exposed actually came down with a cold. Our robust immune systems can and do resist the cold virus. But among those with little stress, 27% came down with a cold. Among those with more worry and anxiety, 47% of the people got a cold. When we worry, when we are anxious, we are literally inviting a host of opportune diseases and viruses to take hold of our body. And why is this? It's because our body is already fighting something that doesn't even exist. So if just telling you not to worry doesn't help, what can help? Well, first of all, there are four or five things that we can actively do to get rid of worry and those kind of nameless fears. The first one, believe it or not, is to create a worry period. Now, I know this sounds silly, but the advice is just telling you to stop worry kind of doesn't have any effect. But we can actually tell ourselves to worry at a specific time to create a worry period, right? And so when, Larry, when it's 10 o'clock and Larry doesn't come home, instead of starting to worry about me, you say, now wait a minute, my worry period is from 9 to 10 every morning. I'm just going to write it down on the piece of paper, and I'm just going to let whatever happened be in the hands of sweet, sweet providence. We're going to turn this over to God, and I'm going to worry about it later. Maybe, it, maybe it'll do some good later. And believe it or not, this actually works. And they say, just 
you know, even use post-it notes because the process of writing down your worry, even though you're going to worry about later, has the effect of kind of releasing it a little bit. I'm going to actively do something about this later. When it comes to my worry period, I'm going to worry about world health, and I'm going to worry about Larry being late, and I'm going to worry about Zane's grades, and I'm going to worry about, do you know what I mean? I'm going to worry about it later. The reason this is so effective is twofold. Once, you actually stop the worry cycle very often by postponing it. And when you get to it at 10 o'clock during your worry period, Goldman says most people just laugh. (laughs) Most people will go, wait a minute, I'm going to worry about, you know, it's crazy. And, the, and, and so the, maybe the one or two things that still seem troubling, they'll worry about. But instead of spending you know, hours throughout the day off and on worrying about something, they've limited it to 10 minutes and they start breaking the cycle. The next thing he says to do is to notice what worries are actually solvable and what worries are not solvable. And make a pact with yourself that if it's not solvable, you're going to turn it over to God that you're just going to say, this isn't for me to deal with. Now, today is International Peace Day. And what I know is there are actually people who worry a great deal about peace, about the wars that are going on in the world. And I would suggest to you, if you're one of those people, worrying about it is not helpful at all. Is there something you can do about it? In your own heart, in your own mind, you can experience peace. And that, if we are to have a lasting peace on the planet, is how it's going to happen. It's going to happen by us as individuals embracing and living peace in our own lives. It's not about worrying about it. In fact, what does worry tend to do? It's like a little negative prayer. The things we worry about with the greatest fervency and and the most heartfelt sense of fear, those are the things that are apt to produce more negativity in our lives. It's just the way the science of mind works. So, is there something you can actually do about this worry? If there is, well then go do it. And if not, if your evaluation is, you know what? My worry actually can't really be productive here. Larry's either going to come home or he's not, right? So make a pact with yourself. The things that you can actually have an impact on, the things that you can do something about, let's take our worry and act on it. If not, let's turn it over to God. And then the final thought around this which is obviously quite lovely. You know, we just had a month of studying Thich Nhat Hanh last month, right? Guess what the last suggestion is? It's mindfulness. It's being in the present moment. And if you think about this, this makes perfect sense. Because what is worry? Worry is about the future. Worry is about things that have not happened yet. And if you bring mindfulness into your current consciousness, if you notice the things you're grateful for right now, if you notice what a beautiful day it is and that you're surrounded by the people that you love, if you notice that your your home is, is sweet and well cared for, if you notice the that your family, 99% of what's going on is the right stuff going on. It puts into perspective that the worry is just a future thing that is unlikely to exist in the real world.
And in terms of mindfulness practices, oh my gosh, there's meditation, there's gratitude journals, there's uh, uh, intentional walking, intentional eating, anything, anything that will bring you into the sweet, sweet possibilities of what's going on right now. Not worrying about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be here soon enough, right? And maybe the worry will turn into an actual fear tomorrow, but that's okay because then you could address it. Then there might be something you could physically do about it. If it's just that nameless dread, if it's just that worry that, that, that something may go wrong, not useful at all. Let's embrace what's going on right now. Let's put on a, a beautiful piece of music by Nemo and, and, and listen in the moment. Let's, uh, let's really enjoy what is before us before we make that mistake of tying up our emotionality into something that may not even happen. Well, I'm going to close today with a quote from Ernest Holmes, but you know me, I'm one of those folks that likes homework. So my suggestion is If in your own heart there is one emotion that maybe gets expressed out of balance. So let's say you are a worrier and you know who you are. (laughs) Let's say you're one that has a quick temper and you probably know who you are too. Maybe there's someone here in the room that really is sad way more than seems appropriate or in balance with life and you probably know who you are too. If you have an emotion that seems a little out of balance, let's begin this week by thinking how we can actually use it for good. So first, what do we do? What have we learned? We've learned to perhaps step back from the emotion itself and do a little bit of analyzation. What could be useful out of this? Will sadness, for instance, cause me to be different or do something different or cause some kind of action to take place? If so, then let's intentionally move forward and do something about it so that the emotion can be resolved, so that the emotion can pass through us. The same with anger, the same with, uh, with any of the fear-based emotions. See if there's something to be done. Allow yourself to feel the feelings and then step back from it so you can take a look at it. Is it useful? What can you learn from it? If there is something to be done, let's take the steps to do it, but let's have a resolution to it. Let us feel complete with it so that we're not left over with long periods of sadness or long periods of anxiety. When those creep upon you, we must take proactive action. So that's your homework for this week. I'm going to close with a final quote from Ernest Holmes. This is from his book called Richer Living. He's the founder of our science of mind. He says, both fear and anger begin and end with the mind of the one doing the thinking. The nightmare of binding and restricting thought is broken as we turn to a belief in the goodness of God the presence of a creative mind, and the feeling of the love that will never fail. As we do this, true peace steals upon us, and faith rises up for us always. Let us pray. There is one power, one presence, one life, and one love, and whether you call it, uh, whether you call it God, whether you call it Allah, 
whether you call it the divine feminine, whatever name you might think of it, what it represents is that true availability of love and peace everywhere. And so for this day, I claim it to begin with for myself. I know that on this International Day of Peace, that is what I am feeling in my own heart. And my heart becomes a reflection of my deeds and, and the things that I am and do in the world. Truly a man of peace. I know that I can process the strong emotions that come my way, whether it be fear or anger. I know that I can actually turn them into something useful and positive in my life. And as it is true for me, I know it is true for each person in this room and beyond. Each person that can hear my voice on this day recognizes they have the capability of taking strong emotions and doing something powerful and positive, even beautiful with them, allowing them to change their world using the emotion as the impetus without becoming overwhelmed by the sense of it. This is available to each person here and beyond and I'm grateful for this. Grateful for the power and presence of God, even showing up as strong emotions. And so I let it be on this day. I release this prayer, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you were here to join us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.